Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. The goal of this and every podcast is to help our listeners learn from the best doctors about health issues that can affect them or their loved ones. Today, I have the pleasure of having Dr. James Dillard as our guest. Dr. Dillard has some pretty impressive credentials on paper and in the media. He is not only a medical doctor, but also a licensed chiropractor, and a licensed acupuncturist. He has appeared several times on The Dr. Oz Show. He's had his own PBS special, Chronic Pain Relief, and he is the author of The Chronic Pain Solution. I just want to take another moment before I actually introduce James that to remind him of an interesting story of how we actually met. It was in the mid-1990s. I was actually a few years in practice, and I was traveling around, trying to train with the best holistic doctors I could find in in distinguished programs. And I actually went out to Northern California, and I trained with Dean Ornish, who was working on the reversal of heart disease program, which was really quite interesting. And then I headed to upstate New York to a workshop with Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, who was a leader in the mindfulness meditation for patients with chronic stress and pain. And shortly after that, I was just like so motivated, I started my own wellness program in my practice based on their teachings and started working with patients of mine on weekends. And the results were really quite remarkable. People I saw that were having chronic asthma were noticing they didn't need their inhalers anymore, were feeling better. Patients that had hypertension, their blood pressure was going lower. And so I really thought this had a bigger place. And I was fortunate to get a contact to have one, someone put me in touch with Oxford Health Plans. And they were just starting up an alternative medicine program. And I drove up to Connecticut, and I met with, I believe, a Dr. Hassan, who at the time seemed very interested in taking this to a new level. However, he said, I want you to meet my co-director in New York. He's this guy with all of these several degrees. He's like a specialist in everything. He's the kind of guy you want to meet. So I waited, and I said, okay. A couple of weeks went by. And they scheduled the Oxford meeting in Midtown Manhattan. It was a beautiful spring day. A bunch of us were gathered around the table. Dr. Hassan was there. Actually, Dr. John Kavazin, one of my heroes, you know, in holistic medicine was there as well. And we were all introducing ourselves around the table. And then, all of a sudden, as the discussion went on, I got to meet Dr. Dillard. He was essentially the mystery guest for me. I had never met him. And he really took charge of the meeting, asking all of us the right questions. How do we get this off the ground? How do we make this practical? He was also very quick-witted and had a great sense of humor. Now, he wasn't anything like I expected, like one of those dry academic doctors with all these credentials. After that meeting, began a 20-year collegial friendship, and I have a tremendous respect for him. So without further delay, I'd like to introduce Dr. James Dillard. Who are you talking about, Dean? <laughs> I had to work on this very hard, but it actually came very easy because it's all true. And I, and I think that sometimes... It's a nice story, but I'm not sure I know this. You don't guy. remember that one? I remember. <laughs> no, I... I yes, I, I You had a lot of meetings probably back in those days. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it was... Look, that was a very tense time. We were trying right. to build... The right. first comprehensive alternative medicine program inside mm. a U.S. health insurance company. Right, right. And we actually did that. We built the first program in any U.S. health insurance company with the help of, of people like Dean Mitchell and John Kabat-Zinn and, and others. We certainly couldn't have done it on our own. So it was only by bringing in the smartest doctors in the room to be able to tell us what we needed to do. Yeah. It was unfortunate, I think, as you know, too. I mean, Oxford and a lot of the insurance companies went through a lot of turmoil and it never really probably got to its full potential, but it, it no, gave they, us all hope. they messed up financially with yeah. their Medicare products just as we were really mm. hitting our stride. Yeah. Well, that is also past history. What I am really excited today to talk about, and I think why our listeners are tuning in, is because we're going to talk today about a hot topic of 
mold exposure and its effect on adults and children. And in fact, you know, the Occupational Health and Safety Administration estimates that 15 percent of the workforce and school children are affected by mold exposure. So it's a growing and serious problem in this country. And what I want to first ask you before we start to get into the nitty gritty, which I know patients want and the listeners want to know so much, but I'm curious, and again, I'm impressed. You know, you went from this really renowned chronic pain specialist to, in these recent years, becoming an expert on toxic mold disease. Now, first of all, I admire somebody who goes out of their comfort zone. You know, so many doctors, they become specialists in an area, and they just really become micro experts in in different areas. But you, and I, I like to think of myself too, you don't like to stay, you know, caged up. And you went from caring for these chronic pain patients to this area of toxic mold, which, again, as I said, I think it's a very bold move. Well, I think you and I are both clinicians and academics who are, who are curious. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that comes across our plate, very often the answers we have for it, it seems incomplete in a lot of ways. So I didn't decide to go into mold illness I can tell you quickly how this happened. I wanted to know. That was my next question. (laughs) My practice became more and more a matter of dealing with chronic neurological, neuropathic pain. One in two Americans, uh, uh, one in three Americans, according to the Institute of Medicine, suffer with chronic pain. And half of those people, probably a good 40 to 50 million Americans live with some kind of nerve-based pain. So it's enormous. And you all know the typical things. The typical story is somebody with diabetes and they start not being able to feel their toes. And after a while, it starts becoming painful and then it's hard for them to walk on their feet. That's the most common cause of neuropathic pain. And in taking care of people with chronic long-term nerve-based pain, I started to realize that I was not getting the whole story. Here's what happened. You go to a lot of neurology meetings and pain meetings, and you listen to this, again, the smartest doctors in the room, supposedly. There's an enormous amount of chronic pain, and particularly chronic nerve-based pain, for which we have no cause. It's called idiopathic, Mm -hmm. idiopathic neuropathy. And as much as 60% of chronic neuropathic pain We don't have a cause for it. Now, we do have a big mega list of things that can cause nerve-based pain. But very often, we do all the tests and nothing pops out. Now, practicing in New York, we have a lot of things that we have in New York that that are not elsewhere. we got great thin crust pizza. We've got crazy politics. And we've got a lot of Lyme disease, okay? One of my offices is in East Hampton, has been for a while. A lot of my patients out there have been hit by ticks multiple times. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Well documented. You know, making the CDC criteria on all the, the, the testing. And a lot of these people had nerve pain. And this was not originally part of the Lyme picture, although neurological losses were considered to be one of the scenarios for somebody who's got Lyme, Lyme disease for example, uh, facial palsy is one of the presenting scenarios of new onset Lyme. That is, you can't move half your face. Looks like a Bell's palsy. Right. It's very anyway, I was forced, Dean, essentially forced to learn more about all these other things that cause nerve pain. And it turns out in recent, recent research People who are exposed to Lyme disease for any length of time very often have long-lasting neurological damage and long-lasting immunologic distortion because the actual bits and bobs of the, the, of the bacterium cross into the brain. They get across the blood-brain barrier, and they cause this long-lasting chronic central nervous system injury and immunity distortion, and this is based upon Armin Aladini's work and the CATS lab at Yale and Aladini's at Cornell. Anyway, long story short, people who've been exposed to Lyme, whether they know it or not, can have long-standing nerve-based pain, terrible pain, 
along with other lots of other things. Okay, so that became part of my, all right, great. Now I got to start taking care of everybody with tick disease. Right. But that's okay. I, you know, I read, uh, read a lot of papers. The other thing is about half the people on Long Island, their houses are wet. Their houses are wet. You go down into the basement and it smells like mildew. No, you're 100% right. I, you know, you, I was just going to jump on that, that I live on Long Island, and I've had some you know, minor floods in my, my home. And, you know, as you know, too, the climate change. I mean, we had Hurricane Sandy. You That's know, right. Obviously, there's Hurricane Katrina in Louisiana. These floods have serious consequences. And, of course, the most recent one is Puerto Rico. Oh, my God, yes. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you talk about how some federal agencies are saying, oh, well, you know, all these kids and people are exposed to mold and mold illness. And the public health people say, oh, yeah, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. But if you ask 100 doctors, MDs, what the problem is with the human exposure to mold, virtually every single one of them, the last doctor will say allergy. That's right. That is 100% right. And, and I have to, we're going to get into this. I, myself and you're an include, allergist. Right. So. I have that allergy <laughs> background. And I, I, you know, again, you know what brought us together again, too, in a sense, was I was getting all of these calls at least several a week saying I have mold problem. And then we, and my girls would try to get on the phone. I mean, you have a mold, you think allergy? They go, no, I think I have toxic mold in my house. And that's again something, you know, until I got all of your papers that you'd sent to me, which were great, didn't mm. really really even understand or what to do with it. It's very frustrating. So we're going to get into that. Well, this is, this is the point that I made on the Dr. Oz show. He did a show on, on mold, mold injury and mm-hmm. indoor mold poisoning. And I was uh, one of the people who, who spoke on that. And the point that I made to Dr. Oz was mold poisoning has to be part, has to be on the list. For me, as a nerve pain doc, Mold poisoning has to be on the list, along with heavy, heavy metal poisoning and organophosphates. And there's lots of other things because the third most common cause of, of chronic nerve pain is toxic exposures. And what goes in there, the most common form, is chemotherapy. Many of your listeners will know people, or they may actually have been through it, themselves. Somebody who's been on chemo, who's gotten chemo, and it's blown out their nerves. It's made their face numb. It's given them numbness and tingling in their hands and feet. And very often, chemo-related neuropathy can resolve, can get better. But anything that is a strong poison can hit the nervous system. And this is the area of my interest. i presented a, a series of uh, 39 patients at the, the big uh, mycotoxin meeting in Amsterdam this past summer. And what I'm finding is that a lot of people who have wet houses, there's mold somewhere, they got a leaky pipe, and they have all these symptoms. You can test them and they will show having these these terrible poisons, very powerful poisons in their system. Okay, we're going to get to that. I want to just back up for a second because I want to also just kind of define for the listeners a few things. And, you know, one of the things also my interest is about the how the immune system, because that's my background in immunology, how mold affects, mm-hmm. you know, depending on what your own immunity is. Now, mold, just so our listeners know, essentially is normally colorless. But when it forms spores, it produces those colors. And that's why you'll see... The black mold, which is, you know, stachybotrys, the uh, blue-green mold, which is, again, mm-hmm, penicillium, mm-hmm. and what they call the red-colored molds, which are aspergillus, fusarium, and rhodoterula, if I'm saying those right. Mm-hmm. And I know this is mm-hmm. hard, you know, for the audience, but these are the ones you do need to get familiar with. Now, thousands of fungi exist in nature, but there are only a few that are clinically important. James, what I want to get to your point, you know, it becomes a danger in certain patients. Uh, Obviously, maybe there's genetic predisposition. But, you know, one of the things that I see frequently in my practice, again, people don't really appreciate it. So many patients now are on what we call biologics, you know, for rheumatoid arthritis, Mm -hmm. for psoriac arthritis, for Crohn's disease, you know, the Mm -hmm. Humeris, 
you know, just the whole list of them, the Enbrils. And that, you know, I don't think people appreciate that that kind of combination, like where you're having some immune suppression and mold, which normally your immune system would be able to handle to some degree unless it's at a toxic level. Now you're in a different situation. Yeah, and you and I have seen this many times. Somebody has a water incursion in their house, and, you know, within within two days, if water's not cleaned up, if it gets on the wallboard or the wood or the floor or the rug or the subfloor, within two days, you have mold growth. It's, it's not optional. It happens immediately. Within 36 hours, mold species, multiple mold species start to grow. Would you say you could smell it most of the time? or that you can, you can smell it, but in the early stages, you usually can't. And then you kind of get used to it. Oh, yeah, Billy's room. Yeah, smelly. It's, it's always smelly. smells a little Get some Febreze. I, <laughs> well, I, you know, I got to go in there and, and vacuum it. But the reality is that there's a hole in the, in the roof or in the mm. wall uh, and, and water's coming in, you know, under the ledger board or something. And it's leaking in and it's keeping some of the building materials in Billy's room wet and it's got multiple species, like the different species you just enumerated, growing in there. And this will, this will really make people sick. And so these people come into my office or somebody else's office. They got a new runny nose. They got new fatigue. They got, you know, X, Y, Z. In my case, I see a lot of neurological injury, dizziness, fatigue, headaches. Now, you're going right down the list. These are all the key symptoms, which, again, are so vague. Aches. For most doctors, because most, as you know, too, most of our colleagues, unfortunately, they hear these symptoms and they're like, oh, I can't do anything about it, you know, and they blow it off. Right. And the other one is the brain fog. I mean, I know, again, people brain hate that fog, term. Absolutely. People hate like, that term, people but it's the best. Straight. Right. But it's the best way people can describe, I'm just not as sharp as I was. I can't remember details at work. I'm not functioning at the same level. And I think this is really critical. So, yeah, I think that it was terrific. You listed essentially all the things, brain fog, dizziness, fatigue, muscle well, aches, you and, I, you and I, there's a brilliant paper that I sent you from yes, a, a yeah, guy I have, named I have it in front of me. Theo Herides up, in, up yeah. at Tufts University that yes. talks about a lot of this. And so the conventional medical world is starting to open its eyes to this. Remember I said the majority of docs will say, oh, it'll make your asthma worse because it's allergic. Right, because they think it's just respiratory. They completely ignore the fact that the toxic molds. Now we got to back up for a second. Okay. The vast majority of molds out there and fungi are not dangerous right. to us. As a matter of fact, we actually have some cheeses where we grow molds because they taste good, uh-huh. like Gruyere and blue cheese. So, and also mushrooms are essentially in that same family. That's right. Now, some of them will kill you. Some of them won't. So when you're thinking about mold, think about it like mushrooms. A lot of them are fine, but there are certain ones that if you get exposed to them, they'll kill you dead in a doornail. And so this is the differentiation that conventional medicine has not made. Well, these are the ones the that, right, so these are the ones like you mentioned, these are the ones that produce the mycotoxins. Is that correct? The ones that we have to worry right. about? Right. Now we're, now we're getting, now we're getting to the crux of the matter. Yes. Well, I want them molds to Molds can produce spores which people can allergically react to. And when they're sporulating, they they release billions of submicroscopic spores into wherever they are. And these things can travel like the wind. You can't see them. It's like radiation. You will not be able to see them. Right, right. That's right. You can't see them. And this can be highly allergic, but they also shed bits and pieces of their organisms, the mycelia, and the hyphae, which is, this is all mold talk, sorry. The little bits and bobs of the molds get in the air, and these are also highly allergic. They're very powerful allergens. And then you have to end up in Dean Mitchell's office because you're so allergic. Now, what most conventional docs will do when somebody shows up like this, they'll put them on steroids. That's right, just to reduce the inflammation. They'll do one of two things. They'll give them a Z-pack, They'll give them antibiotics, erythromycin, amoxicillin, blah, 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 one of the usual wonder drugs that we have, and or give them steroids, usually nasal steroids. This is the worst possible thing you you can do when somebody has a reaction to indoor mold. 
Right. I'm so glad you're saying that. You're absolutely right. It's essentially, as we know, you know, mold, <laughs> mold. That's why they came up with penicillin. Uh, penicillin. Mold kills bacteria, you know, and when you don't Correct. have a bacterial problem, you're just suppressing the immune system and changing the microbiome. That's another whole topic we're going to have on my and podcast you can, one day. You can actually take a patient who has had an, ex, uh, an indoor exposure to mold in their house or their workplace or their school. And if you give them the right wonder drugs, if an MD gives them the right wonder drugs, you can turn them into somebody who's chronically ill. Right. Oh, I've seen those, unfortunately, James. You know, we're, we're going well, to get to that because there's, there's something I want to get to. We always get these in our office, don't right. we, Dean? It's like... <laughs> well, I'm going to get to something very specific. You know, let me ask you this, too, because, again, it was one of, I think, the papers you sent me. The, just if we could list the different, like, differential diagnosis. Because, again, when these people are coming in with fatigue, dizziness, headaches, muscle aches, you know, again, one of the papers you sent me, the list, there's obviously Lyme disease, which has to be differentiated if it's a comorbid. There's, of course, right. Gulf War syndrome. If you still see some of those patients, I know those, they were like the forgotten warriors, you know, essentially from that first Iraqi war. The mm -hmm. other one which really hits home for my practice is chronic fatigue syndrome. And I'm going to tell you why mm. the things that you sent me were so eye-opening. We're going to get into this in a little more detail because I think it's so important. Chronic fatigue patients now called myalgic encephalomyelitis, because these patients mm -hmm. have so many of these debilitating symptoms that really overlap with mold exposure. And I know when I do my evaluation with patients, I was really fortunate to train with somebody named Jacob Teitelbaum, who's considered mm -hmm. one of the experts mm -hmm. in the country in this. And his, in his book, From Fatigue to Fantastic, he goes through all the different things, you know, his protocol to try to evaluate these very complicated patients. But what I'm starting to see and, and really seeing the connection, especially from that paper you sent me on the connection between chronic fatigue syndrome, patients mm -hmm. with mycotoxins, yeah. yes, it was so eerie because these patients have these symptoms. And one of the things we can get into also is that these fungi with their mycotoxins, and I, I hope the listeners are, are following with us, are very damaging to what's called mitochondria. And what I like to tell patients mm. is mitochondria are inside all of our cells. They're like the little battery, you know, that produces mm -hmm. ATP. And why is that important? Because when the battery runs low or out, you feel awful. And I found it fascinating, again, the paper you sent me, how so many of these mycotoxins are damaging to the mitochondria Exactly. And, you know, we're going to yeah, get into that because mitochondria are like little power factories in right. your cell. Yeah. And if you gum up those little power factories, the cell just can't function. Right. And if you have a lot of mitochondria in a lot of cells, these little power factories, if you gum up all these power factories all over your body, you are going to feel terrible and you're going to get sick. Right. And so this is what you and I run into a lot with our patients. But let me just back up sure. a little bit because sure. there's a lot of different kinds of doctors in the world. There are the academics who teach in the medical schools like you and I do. And you were originally Columbia when I was Columbia That's University. Right. right. right uh, teaching at, at Columbia. And so then there's all the practitioners out there who were doing pretty much straightforward, good, solid practice. Then they're the kind of hippie doctors. <laughs> and, and, and some of these, some of these hippie doctors get into a thing, you know, their thing is, you know, some special illness that they right. sort of specialize in. Right. And a lot of people are interested in complementary and alternative medicine and having alternatives to conventional medicine. Right. But they get in with a certain number of these people who are running practices that are all focused around one problem or one solution. And here's the thing. There's not a conflict between being a really good, academic, rigorous, conventional doctor and being able to do things that most of the people don't know about. And part of it is that you have to read a lot of papers. <laughs> poor, our poor listeners likes. have been already hearing me and Dean talk about all these research papers like, oh, my God, it's taking me well, back to school. Well, no, actually, I have to stop you on this because it's so but there's important. there's no conflict between No, but it's things. so important because, you know, uh, the quick story I'll, I will tell you, when I finished medical school and I was so tired of taking exams every week and reading very much, I said, 
I'm never going to look at another paper again or a textbook. <laughs> I'm finished. I mean, I'm just, there's got to be a hiatus. And <laughs> then as soon as I got into residency, you know, we, I, I was training in the height of the AIDS epidemic. I mean, every <laughs> night, even after a long day, I found myself, you know, reading papers and trying to figure how do I help my patients? And that actually just continued through my career. And now, like you, when I teach the medical students, that's the first thing I tell them, never stop learning. It's the only thing that can make us better doctors because new things exactly are coming Exactly right. right. And I get, uh, I get fourth-year medical students from Columbia and from other schools who come in. One of my good friends is the dean of admissions at Harvard. So he sends some of his fourth years down, down to me, poor things. And, and <laughs> I... And I do the same thing. It's like, okay, so where's the evidence? Where are the papers? What, what body of literature are we basing all this on? Because, you know, Dean, we've gotten a lot of things wrong. It used to be that somebody had sinusitis, you'd always throw antibiotics That's right. at them. That's right. That was just routine until somebody actually, after 20, 30 years of doing this, somebody actually did a trial to see if people did better or worse with a simple sinusitis, if you throw antibiotics at them, well, guess what? The antibiotics basically make them worse. Well, you're right. There was a there was a study by the Mayo Clinic where I think it was about four or five years ago. The ENT surgeons went in and actually took tissue on like 300 patients with chronic sinus or and polyps, and what they found, which was astounding, was the majority of the patients had fungi. They had no bacteria yep. in there, and yep. that again yep. changed thinking. They have thinking. fungal overgrowth, and if you throw steroids and antibiotics right. to those people, you can actually make them chronically ill because they are colonized. They're badly colonized with nasty molds. Yeah, well, I, I think the listeners fungi. have right, but the listeners need to understand something. This is so important. I had this with actually I had Linda Dahl, who's an ENT physician, who's terrific. She was on my podcast a few episodes ago, and what we talked about is that the patients get fooled in a way. It's the quick fix because with the steroids or the antibiotics, because they're anti-inflammatory, you feel better mm-hmm. the first couple of days, but mm-hmm. it's when you're hooked and you're essentially coming back and back. And that's what I hope people yeah. remember. And, and then you're chronically ill. Right. And then you go downhill from there. And then you see the kind of things that you and I also see. You know, it's not that hard as a, as a practicing doc to just take the temperature of the immune system. You know, you get your, your basic cell counts. That'll tell you, tell you a lot about what's going on with right. the body, what the white cells and red cells look like. And then you, you, you actually measure the, the antibodies. You get the total IgG, IgI. I, I don't want to get into too much. Right. You can get the subclasses. Right. You get the... You do an immune workup. You do a care for immune workup. Yeah. It's not hard to do a very quick... Yes. Fairly, fairly insightful look at the immune system to yeah. see if there's distortion. Right. And I'll tell you, in a lot of these mold cases that I get, I get really frightening results. Like the person has one of the classes of antibodies is just not there. Wow. No, that's you know, like I, I had a guy who was terribly mold poisoned. He had no IgM. Well, you know, one of the things I just want to bring up, too, again, because I, when I'm teaching the medical students, I actually teach the, med- the immune section. You know, the thing with molds, for sure, also, you really want to look at, like, natural killer cells. That's a little bit more sophisticated. Absolutely. You know, just some of the papers are showing that they're decreased. But, yeah, you, know, you get the subsets of all the natural yeah. killers, and you want to see right. the ratios of the different yeah. but white me, cells. But this is one thing that's really important, and I really need your help with this, because, I, again, I just started looking at this, because it's hard to get these labs. I have in front of me from a patient that came in and brought these labs to me. It was from the Great Plains Laboratory. And I know you kind of know which labs are good or not. And she had the mycotoxin profile, which I believe is urine, right? That's the best way to check. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she had, I'm going to go slow for the listeners, they understand something called aflatoxin, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. comes out of aspergillus. She had something called acrotoxin. A, and, uh, okra, okra. Thank you, like O-C-R-A, okra, okra toxin, okra yeah. toxin, and gliotoxin. I mean, they were all measured. They were all negative, except for the okra toxin, which was markedly elevated. It was almost double the normal range. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think we talked about this a little bit before. Once we were just on the phone, what does you know? Is this something again? If you had a patient, let's say they're not in New York and they get, can't get to see the expert James Dillard. If they go to their doctor and they evaluate them and they don't have autoimmune disease and they don't have other things and they say, you know what, mm-hmm. I think I saw water damage in my house and it smells moldy. Can you check me for, you know, mold? Is this the kind of testing you would recommend that they get? Yeah, I think the, the first line, and again, if you talk to most conventional doctors, 
they'll think you're completely insane. I know, I know. They'll That's what we're trying to do here. They'll think you have psychiatric illness. I they'll know. say to the psychiatrist, they say, oh, you're you know, right. there's no problem living with mold. Uh, all it'll do is make you sneeze. So exactly, right. We've got to change that thinking. Mm-hmm. We've got to change that thinking, and now very powerful forces in academic medicine are starting to recognize that this is really probably an epidemic, a serious epidemic that's being ignored. For me, the first thing is they got to have a story. You know, we have to, right, history we, have is to key. we always make lists of what something could be. Somebody's got a cough. Okay. Could be an upper respiratory infection. They got a little cold. It's going to be gone in three days. Somebody else comes in with the same cough and they got lung cancer. Right. So, We as doctors are always responsible for making a list of all the things that it could be. Yeah, I always say Dr. Google can't replace us on this. You know, it's one of the few things that they still need. And with nerve illness and with a lot of stuff that you see, there's there's a whole list that we have to consider if we're going to be thoughtful and careful. And so my first line is, do they have a story? Do they have a story where there was mold illness? God, I saw a kid who was in a moldy dormitory and sick as a dog for a couple of years, graduated, barely, came home, felt better, but was still really sick. So there was a story there of a leaky pipe and mold growing in that dormitory building. If the story is there, and if it looks like this is a possibility, you know, you have to consider the possibility. I think the first line is to get the urinary mycotoxin levels. Mm-hmm. Leave the immune system alone. Like you say, if they don't have any autoimmune stuff, leave that alone. Once they come back positive for one or more of these nasty, nasty poison. Now, when I'm talking about poison, I'm not talking about regular poison. Something like trichothecene, which is produced by stachybotrys, is deadly in parts per billion. Well, right. You hear those stories, which, you know, some of these people are living like this for months, so fortunately they're not dead. Yeah, but this they're, is they're known toxicology. We, yeah. we bombed Laos with T2 trichothecene during the Vietnam War. It was called Yellow Rain. Mm. We were experimenting with it being an agent of chemical warfare, and it was extraordinarily effective. We dumped it out of B-52s on various areas in Laos, and then we had people go in and see what happened. The problem with this particular mold poison is it killed everything. Mm. It killed everything. It killed the plants. It killed all the animals. It killed all the Vietnamese and all the Viet Cong. And some of our scouts who went in got sick and died. Right. And God knows how many of us soldiers, experiments. Whose and kids, whatever, had medical issues. You know. Trichothecene growing in your house. Dr. Dill, let's talk about this. So you get this urinary test and you find one of these toxins. Obviously, you're worried about your home, and it's always not easy for somebody, obviously, who's got a, a mortgage and has investment in their home to move out yeah, of their that's home. A, that's Who, a mess. Right. So what do you recommend? I mean, I well, actually, I once met with this guy, Bill Southern, a really great guy. He he actually was called to go down to Katrina to do a lot of the evaluations. What do, uh-huh. you, what do you tell your, your patients? Do you tell them you need to get a reputable company to test what type of mold it is and, Absolutely. and to but, do remediation. You know, the story is compelling, Dean. I've had lots of people come in. They look like hell. Yeah. They were well until they had a water incursion. Right. It's been three months. They look like hell. They're exhausted. They're obviously sick. They're right. green around the gills. You know, you and I developed the instinct for being able to tell who's sick and who's not sick. We can spot sick people all the way across the room. They're sick. The first thing is, if they have a credible story of water incursion, broken water heater, leaky pipes, and, they, they, and they've gotten sick in association with that, the story makes sense. Number one, get them out of the house. I'm sorry. I know, I've seen I've a lot that. of this. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear it. I know. You have to leave now. Mm, you yeah. don't hang around there. Right. You don't wait for somebody to come and evaluate. If you're sick from mold poisoning... 
you're going to hang around in that toxic stew until you get a good Can I ask you, uh, this is like a crazy technical question. Can you, I guess, contact your homeowner's insurance and hopefully say to them, look, I believe, and this is going to be evaluated, this is a toxic situation. Yeah, you Could file a claim, claim but right? that's going to be a long road. Well, I mean, at least to and, hopefully and people, get money back. I mean, it's it's hard to move yeah. in with your relatives <laughs> unless they really like you. I have patients who've been <laughs> able to get their houses remediated, but the homeowner's insurance typically fight them every inch they of do. the way. Yeah, it's so hard. So but terrible here, but right? the most important thing is yeah. I got people who are mold poisoned and they refuse to move out Yeah, and they keep wanting me to do something for them. Yeah. I said, look, if you're going to drink this cup of cyanide every day, right. what am I supposed to do for right. you? Well, right. That's... And they finally do mold move out and they get in the, the environmental inspectors you, and you have to be very careful because about three quarters of them are frauds. Right, the scammers. You got to be very careful with who you get. There's, there's legitimate ones that are very scientifically based and they're very careful. And then there's everybody else right. who's just trying to take your money and run. Right. So then you get a legitimate inspector in. They do the legitimate testing, including testing for mycotoxins, not just air spores. And then you can really get a picture of what's going on. Okay. And you can start to heal. Okay. Let's say, okay, the, a fortunate patient gets out of that environment, but they're still sick. And I looked at the papers you sent me. Obviously, avoidance is the number one treatment, but they mention other things too, like something called carosteramine, which is a, a bile resin binder, and yeah. bentonite and charcoal. Have you used those? Do you find any of those? I know a lot of patients are taking bentonite clay anyway. They're reading those uh, books by the, you know, some of the holistic doctors. It's just good. Yeah, everything, this is but. where we get into the into the, some of the hippie doctors right. who have kind of cults going on. Right, and. Look, I understand people want to feel better. They want to, feel, you know, but some of these things only have a piece of the story. Okay. They know that mold's poisonous. They know that it makes people sick, but they run off and they have these protocols based upon no science whatsoever. I'm going to have to jump in and ask you about, I know, I think you have strong feelings about it, but like Richie Schumacher, who a lot of my patients have brought to my attention, um, and you know, he, I know that uh, he was interviewed by Suzanne Summers, you know, for good or bad, but, and he's also listed in some of these papers. Yeah. Richie's done, Richie's done a couple of papers, yeah. but, but he, but uh, let me tell you, yeah. I, I, I don't really care about the damn doctors to hell with the doctors. Okay. I care about the patients. Right. You know, I, he has a right to, ha to have his, his approach to this. But he's kind of developed this whole thing where he trains people in his technique. Right. For me, that's a bridge too far. Okay. And there's a lot of things that they don't do. Okay. The Schumacher protocol may help a lot of people, so long as the first step is get away from right. the actual well, that, that makes mold. sense. Right. I think uh, you know, too. Yeah. I, hate, I hate to keep harping on no, that. No, it's the most but. important thing. The only thing else I could tell patients is this. I became obsessed in my house. I became best friends with my plumber. Because I always have him checking every – I never even realized how many through the, the tiles and through recurrent water things, like little leaks around toilets. I mean, again, when you're in a home, it's just something you have to become super aware about. So Absolutely. And I've had a lot of patients who have, quote, unquote, had their houses remediated. Well, they got one of these crook remediators who did a quick and dirty job, and the house was still dirty. And there's just a couple of things. You can go in with the real test. And the most sensitive one, and I hate to give away trade secrets because this is, mm -hmm. this is not going to be the only thing. You can take these sample tapes and you, you want to do at least three of them. And the locations are on the top of the refrigerator coil because it's an electrostatic structure. It will collect dust and it will collect nanoparticles. You take one tape swatch there. You take another tape swatch at the intake of the HVAC system, the air air conditioner system. And if you can get into it, you take the third swatch in the air handler, in the HVAC, in your air conditioning and heating unit. Now, if you send those out to a reference lab and they do not have mycotoxins on them, then your house is clean. I cannot tell you how many times I've done those three tests. And sure enough, the house is still plenty dirty so this poor patient is still sick and is still breathing in dust and, and nanoparticles that are loaded with these poisons. And unless you're that rigorous, 
Look, it's like somebody with asthma, Dean, you know. They're people who are extremely sensitive. God, they have to live, they have to have covers on their mattresses, right. and they have to live in these immaculately clean. You, you have to go through this with patients all the time. And that also has a lot to do with their immune system because their microbiome. I mean, we're starting to find out more and more now about you know, ATP, allergic diseases. Um, Absolutely important, yeah. too, yeah. but... But people who are genuinely sensitive yes. to like yes. dust mites and stuff, yeah. man, it's it's hard to live that no, way. You, you, like your, your point is so key. I mean, being vigilant. You know, even in my own home, I remember a few years ago, I noticed around the air conditioning ducts that mold was building. And then you're getting like, ooh, you know, what's going on here? I saw a little bit of black. And I called the guys. I had the guys come in. You know, it was actually a very good company, Cunningham's. And they came in and they did a, a really super thorough thing. And they found at the base of the... With the air conditioning, I guess, you know, the water con- condenses there. Because that's, again, yep. mold likes water. And, likes water. And, you know, anywhere water can accumulate, that's, that's your that's enemy, you know, unfortunately. Water and, forms mold. Yeah. So. And so it's hard to be that vigilant. Mm. But particularly if you've had a problem with this, you have to be. Okay. And if you have children. Look, I've right. got a superintendent from, uh, from Dutchess County. She's running a huge school system. Their main building was completely poisoned. She yeah. was sick. I'm worried half about those schools. Were, I'm really worried about those schools. Were sick. Well, I'm really worried it, about those schools because, you know, I, it's a sad thing to say, but I, I just think I know where my kids went and stuff like that, too. That's just, it just seems like so many times these things are old and nobody's, again, putting in the vigilant, you know, careful assessment. That all gets back to the money. Yeah. It gets back to the school board and the budget. Right. Right. And unfortunately, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who are handling big budgets for big school districts. Yeah. That budget is somehow more important than the health right. of the children. Right. I want to go on to, if I can, yeah. two things. And again, with the the treatment, one of the papers you sent me was really great. Actually, it was the Global Indoor Health Network had a um, pretty yes. large paper, and, and this is I'll tell you this is what fascinated yeah, sure me. Wise cup. Yeah. yeah, this is what fascinated me though, because again, it really got me thinking last night. Actually, before even this podcast, you know, again, when I mentioned to, you, I trained with Jacob Teitelbaum and because these chronic fatigue patients, and yeah. what was really eye-opening for me, because I never thought about things this way, was one of the things in a lot of his protocol was all what he called mitochondrial support. And you know, mm. again, I'm a, like you, I'm, I'm open to a lot of things, but I was like, what does he mean, micro, mitochondrial support? Like, what what is this? I never learned this in any training. And it had about all these different supplements like glutathione and, you know, acetyl-CoA and D-ribose, alpha-lipoic acid, you know, et cetera. But when I was taking care of the chronic fatigue patients we were seeing in our office, where we were all used for IV vitamins and we were using glutathione and we were doing these oral supplements, we were seeing a portion of the patients getting better. And I, again, I did it because I trusted Dr. Teitelbaum. I, he had more experience than I did at the time. But now... Now that I'm thinking about, so again, what always bothered me was the etiology. What was causing these people to have this chronic mm-hmm. fatigue? And now seeing these papers that you sent me and realizing that these mycotoxins can affect the mitochondria, the light bulb went off. And I said, look, it's just something that I think can't be ignored in these chronic fatigue patients. Because somebody was asking me the other day, I forgot who it was. Maybe it was you. No, no, somebody else. It was another Dr. Cornell who had called me up. And he said to me, you know, Dean, he goes... Do you think the chronic, a lot of the chronic fatigue patients you're seeing, it has to do with an infectious etiology? And of course, I'm always checking for Lyme and other unusual things. I have infectious disease training. And I said, you know, really about 5% of the cases are that. Not really very much. I look a lot at endocrine cases, you know, where the adrenal glands are off. Mm-hmm. And that's a very hard thing to measure. But then again, looking at your paper and what they even say in here is that the fungi, the, the mycotoxins affect the hypothalamus. And for our, our listeners, the hypothalamus is in the brain. And, and again, affect the mitochondria. These are all things that Teitelbaum was talking about, but I think he just didn't really have the the background in the mold stuff. Yeah, and look, I think, we could we could scare yeah. your listeners. No, I don't want to that. scare them. I, I want to think. <laughs> I think there's hope. No, I think there's hope here. That's what I'm excited about Cause, today. Because when you breathe in a lot of nanoparticles that are yeah. saturated with these poisons, yeah, th- there's a spot in the top of your nose called the cribriform plate. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where all, a lot of your smell organs are. The olfactory bulb is right there. Right. That tissue is very, very delicate. These mold poisons are fat-soluble, which means they'll go right through cell membranes. Right. And the thing that's crazy is they're finding on necropsy, on, on autopsy, 
that the mold poisons have actually gone straight up into the brain through the cribriform plate by being inhaled. Uh-huh. And that's another thing that freaks me out about people who don't have good remediation. The other thing is that there's a lot of cultiness now that's been built up around mold and mold poisoning and how to treat people. And I get patients all the time who've come from, you know, the shoemaker protocol docs and other people. Everybody wants to know what my protocol is. My protocol is to read all the papers and take care of the patient in front of you. But they get all freaked out with all these other tests. And I'm sure you've seen this too. They come in with the high levels of TGF beta one and they've got the immune TNF alpha and right. they've got the C4A and IL-6. Yeah, these are, and these all, are all the different immune markers, right? For, for listeners. But yeah. These are just markers, right? They're not right. illnesses. Just, right. But well, so, well, let me ask you this too, because I, I really want to press you on the thing. So what I've found too, I guess that's worked with some of my chronic fatigue patients more than I ever even expected, was when I've used antifungals. Do you think antifungals help yeah, for these uh, mold patients in, in, you know, in selected cases? I have, a, I have a sequence that I go in in okay. terms of making the case, the same way a good prosecutor would. Right. I have a sequence I go through, all the while having in the back of my mind, has this person been tested for heavy metals? Right. Has this person had some other illness? Have, do they have a tick-borne illness? Have we gotten the entire tick-borne panel on them? Is there something else going on? Do they have a skids, you know, one of the, 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 immune one of the specific immune deficiencies, right. which is your field. Right. But if I can make the case that this person is probably colonized and has mold actively living and growing in their nasal passages, in their lungs, in their GI tract, in different places like this, then I will treat with antifungals. But I'll get antibody titers first. I will get antibody titers, to specifically to, IgGs, to mold against the major mold species. That's interesting. Yes, we used to do that I'll with hypersensitivity conditions. IgGs yeah, against okay. aspergillus, okay. penicillium, okay. cladosporium. I got a whole panel. You okay. know what's really crazy, Dean? It's not legal to test for that stuff in New York. It's crazy. I mean, it's just, I know. Well, that's what I want to ask you. I have to go back for a second, too. Even the urine mycotoxins, are you allowed to get these in? I mean, the, are you allowed to order them in New York, or do the people have to, like, leave? Yeah, the, I don't they think leave, the, the, people the, have the to leave the country. general is really coming, coming <laughs> after us, but technically, no. the state of New York does not want your doctor to know anything unconventional. They don't want your doctor to even be able to test for this. Stuff. Well, you know what it is also, too? I see, just as a quick thing, too, I see a lot of people that get IgG antibodies to foods, but they're not really useful. I mean, I'm a kind of an expert on that yeah. area. And so it's yeah, really more, it's more the misinterpretation. And then, of course, when there's all these things become illegal or whatever, that's another whole ridiculousness. I mean, you know, it's the medical profession that should be policing itself to say, look, this is best practice, you know. But the state of New York is very, invasive with yeah. doctors in medical practice. Yeah. You know the doctors who are allowed to get the IgG titers against all these different mold people, the different mold species? The doctors who are running cancer units uh, and the doctors who are doing transplantation. Right. And well, those, they, are... those surgeons are really aware of serious invasive, right, invasive, of course they are. They're right. They're right. A person could die in 24 hours with, uh, you know, one they of could those. die within 24 hours. That's why you can't bring flowers onto a, a cancer floor oh, I didn't even or know a transplant that. unit yeah, I didn't think because it's that. loaded with these spores, right. loaded with these molds, and you can kill the patients there very quickly. So this one small subset of doctors do understand highly invasive, the fungal species with most of our people they're, they have chronic illness. Right. It's not something that's going to kill them tomorrow. The oncologists understand this stuff, but it's not going to kill them tomorrow. So you and I, we get people who just feel like they feel terrible for long periods of time. And if they are colonized, if they have these biofilms with growing mold in their bodies, it's really the devil to get rid of. Yeah. But you got to try because, you know, I, I get a certain number of people really well. Got a patient from, I won't name the doctor, but one of the other really famous integrative physicians in New York. Everybody taking a swing at this guy. He'd gotten antibiotics and steroids, and he had all these polyps get cut out. He was sick as a dog. He couldn't sleep. Somebody was giving him sleepers, even though he was obstructing, which is insane. Anyway, I went through the protocol, and this is 
I can't do this for everybody. Uh, you know, I, I'm still walking on leather on, on the floor, not on water. But I got him on antifungals, and he cleared up within a week. Wow. It, it transformed everything. Yeah, no, I think I, I've seen my own practice. It can sometimes be game changer. But the problem is that the weak antifungals like nystatin, they don't break down hyphae. Right, right. No, you need the, like, the I, and I, We're cans, probably so. going off the deep end with your listeners. No, no, this was tremendous. Fungi create this steel wool yeah. surface, and it, it forms into a film hmm. along tissues. And these are real things, biofilms. The little projections of the molds are like steel wool. No, they and are. they're really hard to take apart. And if you throw weak antifungals at them, they will just laugh at you. Right. Well, in concluding, because this was tremendous, and I, I hope all the listeners appreciate it, I, the take-home points for the listeners are that, one, first of all, find a top medical specialist in mold if you're concerned that you have one. And obviously, Dr. Dillard's here in New York. Well, they kind of aren't any. And uh, well, we got you. Well, we got you. The other thing is, if you there's two or three others around, Dean. One of the best is in Kansas City. Yeah. Well, we we have right now we're focusing you up, but we know hopefully people will sometimes call. I get people that call from out of state, so I might get that that list from you because people don't always want to be flying in, but sometimes they do. Also, the take home message: please at home check for water damage if you're really concerned. Get a reputable place to assess it, and again. Find out a way that your doctor can check you in your urine for mycotoxins. I think that's a start. And I just want to thank Dr. Dillard for coming on today. As I said, he's a longtime friend, someone I super respect. And I hope everyone's enjoyed the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com. 